preachers, Jonathan Schrader of Reservoir Church. He and Tab have swap pulpits, so he's up there at North County right now. And Jonathan is here with us to preach to us the word from Isaiah. Jonathan, thank you so much just for your love for Christ, your love for the gospel, your example of that. Appreciate that and excited that you'd be here this morning, church. Let's welcome Jonathan. All right. Do you say that about every guest preacher? They're one of your favorites? You got a big list? No, shh. That's the secret. Don't tell everybody. Well, good morning, Grace Church. I used to say that all the time, but then we changed the name of the church, and so I'm out of practice with Grace Church. It's weird. It's, there's something, when I start praying for Grace, I've been praying for you guys this week that I would serve you well, and that was weird to me, praying for Grace Church, uh, but the Lord's still healing me, so it's Okay. That was a joke, and that's, yep, okay. I realize I stand in the way of you in a feast, um, so we're going we're gonna to get to it and feast on the Word a little bit this morning and see what the Lord might have for us. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. We at Reservoir have been working through Isaiah, and we should be able to finish it in about two years, um, but we want to share some of that truth uh, with you this morning. I love Isaiah. I think it it is probably among my favorites of Scripture, and it is one of the books that is quoted the most in the New Testament. It points to Christ nearly on every page of this prophetic work, Um, so it's very encouraging for us, and hopefully we'll find something um, this morning to bring us back to Christ as well. So I'm going to read, and you can follow along if you have your Bible or your app open to Isaiah 7. We're just going to look at the first nine verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it this morning. So this is the word of the Lord from Isaiah 7. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Well, good and holy God, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, this morning, this seems like a text out of nowhere, and there's a lot going on here, but we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us an opening of our hearts and minds, that we would hear the truth that you would have for us, and that, Jesus, you would be glorified in this place, and we would determine to run to you all the more in 2019. We thank you for what you have done in and through Grace Church here in La Mesa. And we ask, Lord, that you continue to do more among them as they endeavor to be people of the word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am here this morning to harass you about your New Year's resolutions, right? It's a pretty good time. We're six days into the New Year's. You guys are doing pretty good? On your resolution, some of you, I shaved my goatee, which some of you would be like, this guy looks different. Trying to look younger, and so it's not as easy to shave off 40 pounds as it is a little chin hair. So I started there, right? Uh, But for some of us, when we get to the new year, it is just an amazing, wonderful time of year. We enjoy the new year smell of things and the sense of opportunity that we have, that we can start something new. Like, this is going to be it. We're going to go after it. We think, this is a great opportunity to rewrite my story of my life, to begin again, afresh and anew. And for the last six days, if that's your personality, you've been just jumping out of bed joyfully singing, there's new mercies every morning, right? That's how you've been getting through 2019. But for some of us, we have more of uh, what my wife likes to call a realist perspective when the calendar changes a page. Because we wake up and the same burdens remain. The schedule is just about probably tomorrow for most of us to be back to its normal craziness. And it still takes a lot more time and energy to lose that weight than it does to eat a cheeseburger, right? So maybe tomorrow you'll get around to that resolution that you set. It's a good time to start. It's a Monday, beginning of the week. Or maybe you won't. Truth is, you'll probably spend a lot of the year just trying to avoid the crisis of the day. And for these past six days, you've just been sliding out of bed, prying yourself to wake up and crying, there are new mercies every day. But then there's the in-between. And on the spectrum of perspective. Maybe that's where you are, right in the middle. You're the kind of person that's hopeful and you thought, man, I'll just give it a go this year. We'll see what happens. Not uh, too much burden to it. You see an opportunity, but you at the same time then feel the pressure of everything outside of you that's trying to derail your plans in the new year. But you think, Maybe this will be the year that I finally eat healthy or the year that I finish that Bible reading plan I started three years ago. And so you give it a bunch of effort and these last six days you've made some progress, but most of the people around you wish you'd just eat a Snickers. But no matter where you land on this completely made-up spectrum of personalities that I've created for the new year, we all experience this weight of opportunity and responsibility in our lives, especially when the calendar changes and the year moves forward. And it's because typically we take life seriously. 
And life comes at us rather fast. And it's just the reality that all of life is our story as we experience it. Everything that happens to us is consequential. It's important. It matters. And how we respond to it, how we think about it, how we face it can leave us either feeling like conquerors ready to take that hill once and for all, or it can leave us feeling something less. Maybe even like we can't even catch our breath as we go from crisis to crisis. So this morning, what's your perspective? How are you going to approach things in light of the calendar change before the Word of God? Is there meant to be here for us in Scripture an overriding perspective that is guiding us through all of our experience, whether it be easy or it be hard? And that is frankly the tension that's at play in Isaiah 7. We've kind of inserted ourselves into the middle or the early portion of this experience and story that's going on in Judah in Isaiah 7. But there is a crisis that is ensuing, and the king of Judah, the one who sits on the throne of David, responds in the way that he thinks is best. But the voice of God comes and says, I have something else for you. I want you to respond with a different perspective. So what's going on in Isaiah 7? Maybe you're an Isaiah scholar. If you are, we should hang out. You can help me with the rest of the series I'm doing. But as we arrive in Isaiah 7, it's about 735 B.C. And the geopolitical reality at play is that there's Syria, this foreign nation to the north of Israel and Judah, And they have aligned with Israel, which is the rebellious ten tribes that have separated from the others in Judah. And they have worked together because the environment is essentially getting really hot in the Middle East at this moment. There's this kingdom called Assyria that is on the rise and becoming known for ravaging lesser kingdoms in their way. So these two nations decide that as they're in partnership, they actually need more firepower. They need more men to fight. And they demand that Judah join them. They say, come and fight with us. But Judah, at this point, has refused. And then everyone is prepared for war. Those defending from Assyria, those in Syria and Israel coming to attack Judah, and even Judah is beginning to prepare themselves to defend their capital from this onslaught of their neighbors. You see, God even says in verse 6 that that Israel and Syria say, let us go up against Judah to terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel. Let's set up a puppet king in the midst of this nation. So then, The heart of the king, the one who is responsible for leading and protecting this people, Judah, and then all of Judah, all of the people throughout the nation, shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's not a description that any of us set out to have written about us. Like, you you want that on your tombstone? Here lies Jonathan Schrader. He shook like a forest of trees before the wind. It might be true, but I don't want it written about me, right? So Isaiah then is sent in the midst of this 
tension and turmoil to the king of Judah, to Ahaz. And what is said is very specific to his time and to his situation, but I think it also then gives us a universal truth in light of who God actually is and what he does for his people. So this morning, the big idea is simply that firm faith is found in the word of God. Firm faith, being steadfast, being immovable in faith is found in the word of God. And so this morning we want to wrestle with what God actually says to Ahaz and then how that can actually be done in our life. And so we start off just with this call to be firm in faith. We're going to kind of take this text just a little bit out of order and start in reverse this morning and define the change of perspective we're meant to have and then think how we can actually get there as a people in our day. So very, it ends in verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That almost sounds to us like a Christian bumper sticker, right? Or something you'd see on a mug at cell, the Lifeway store. This exhortation that comes in the midst of preparation for war. And it's a call to trust in the Lord. Trust in what he has determined to happen to the people. And for all of Judah just to trust in what he says. And if we have a good biblical perspective or a history of what's going on here. This is really the call of Isaiah all along the way to this point. It's as if the prophet has arrived with this message from God and he says, hey, remember who you are and whose you are and live in light of that truth. And then in some places in the beginning of Isaiah, this has been a call back, a call to repentance, a, a turning away from sin, and an invitation for this nation, God's people, to turn against idolatry and return into relationship with Jesus. They have a really hard time giving up their idolatry and their prized sins at this moment. And so the tension goes back and forth. It's that call to repentance. Then in other places, it's not just a call back, but it's actually a call then forward into a new level of belief for the people informed by the hope and the very word of God, the word that is being spoken to them through this prophet. So while we catch up with Ahaz in this story, who has taken it on his own power to toil, he goes and he checks the stockpile of water that Jerusalem has ahead of what he thinks is this imminent invasion from Syria and Israel. And Isaiah comes and he speaks a different word to Ahaz. You can imagine the tension he's under and he's checking the stockpiles, getting everything ready, and Isaiah shows up and says, bro, chill. The truth that God's covenant with the throne of David still stands despite the people's failure. The prophet here wants us to know from the start that this threat is going to vanish. Like they don't have to be worried. The king can trust and be secure in what God has said. There's no need to worry. God is with his people. As we get to this story, Ahaz does not believe that at all. He doesn't want to believe it. He prefers this life of dismay and hand-wringing, of attempting to solve the problem himself. And so he feels more normal, just frantically living through things, devising his own salvation, and then lusting for the success of his own plans in this moment. So I'm going to strategize and repel the invasion that is sure to come. 
He does that rather than delighting in the victory of God. And so at this moment, Ahaz's heart is hard toward God. So we read, we have to give Ahaz a little bit of credit, don't we? I mean, this is no joke of a situation. He's standing in the face of these overwhelming odds that seem impossible. He's outnumbered, and the enemies happen to be in this moment, a warmongering conqueror, and then your former brothers in ethnicity and faith before God. So that might seem just a little daunting to fight alone as a people. Ahaz is here just grasping at straws. He's like, what can I do? How can I make sure we have enough supplies? And uh, The truth is that trusting in self as Savior is like bringing a teacup to an inferno. And this is what Ahaz is doing. How many times have you been in a similar situation? I know I certainly have. Sure, it probably hasn't been a pair of invading nations at our doorstep bearing down on us, but... Maybe to you, like me, the IRS or a mortgage payment can feel just like two invading armies at our door. And how do we respond to that? Do we just batten down the hatches and pull up our bootstraps and see what we can do? Do we fight a battle that we are told that we don't actually need to fight on our own? Think of how we respond in relationships, uh, in our work, in providing for our families, checking our stockpile of water instead of heeding the word of God. Determined to be our own champions when we have a crisis with our strategy, our resources. Where, when circumstances grow difficult in our lives, the truth is that the, the temptation to cease trusting God only increases. Surely I have to step up and handle it myself. And the prophet says that he's going to the house of David. And that's an interesting reminder here of the legacy of the Davidic throne and its representative here, Ahaz. He's invited back again into trusting God. He's invited to set aside his ability, his success, and once and for all rest in God's control. Prophet says, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering wicks. He's essentially saying, Don't be scared of these cigarette butts. Like nothing's going to happen. One writer says, Practical people, they would say, you have to live in the real world where political astuteness and military muscle are what counts. But Isaiah says this is not a choice between viable alternatives. It's actually a life or death decision in who Ahaz will trust, himself or God. The prophet says, yeah, the odds seem impossible, but faith stands tall. He says, be firm, trust, don't waver. If you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. We love this. As evangelicals in our modern environment, we love this call. This is something we can actually get our hands around, right? We can grip onto this. Yes, I need to be firm in faith. I need to stand tall. And then we hear the brother of Jesus, James, write in his epistle, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
The truth is that isn't just a reckless, like, follow after God and do whatever you like, because James essentially tells us that wisdom and faith are not in opposition of each other. In fact, in the very next verse, in uh, verse 5, he's going to instruct those lacking wisdom to actually ask for wisdom in faith. It's more like what's wise in the eyes of man is foolish when you have God's eternal perspective. And James goes on, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all all his ways. So we walk away from Scripture and we hear the truth proclaimed from the prophetic voices, from the apostles and others, and it's essentially a message of trust or bust. Believe what is being said or there's not much else for you. And God is saying through Isaiah that those that belong to him should be armed with just such a firmness that they actually overcome fear. Be firm in faith. Don't worry about these armies that are bearing down on you. So this morning, I'd like to give you six steps of being a victorious Christian. Yeah, thanks for laughing. You knew that. That's not what I'm going to do. But is there a step to having a firm faith? And I think there is here, and there's really just only one. Like This is all that's provided from Isaiah as he goes before Ahaz. Like This is the only step. And he doesn't just mimic the Nike slogan and tell Ahaz, just do it. He actually gives him a reason, a foundation for this firmness that is desired. It's the truth that God's word is the basis of faith. You can't have a firm faith if you don't have the word of God spoken to you, revealed to you. And right away in our text, we see God at work. Maybe you noticed it, maybe you didn't. But he talks about Syria and Israel come up to Jerusalem to wage war against them, but could not yet mount an attack against it. That's a providence of God that they desired to go and just rampage Judah, but they were not allowed to. They're prevented from executing their plan, and so there's a deeper purpose overriding their plans. And ooh, if we could just have a vision for that deeper purpose, even in our own lives, that overrides the plans of everyone else, things would be dramatically different. So then Isaiah, in the midst of this, like God's providentially working, preventing the invasion from happening, and he says that Isaiah should go and give a specific promise. And God tells him to take his son with him. This is like, bring your child to work day in the Bible, and then go to Ahaz and tell him to chill, like to have faith, to trust in God. And they have strategized against you, he says, essentially. They want your throne for their own good, but it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Could you imagine being Ahaz? Like, say what? Like, what? what's going to happen here? These foreign aggressors aren't actually going to come at us. Like, we don't have to worry about that. The truth is that God does not in this moment wait for Ahaz to pray to him or to seek him on his own accord, but instead God promises that he will grant deliverance. The word then is meant to build up Ahaz's and the nation's faith. Like that's what's going on here. God has made a promise and they can actually trust him. They can be firm in faith in him because he speaks the truth. And that's the story of Israel's history from the beginning, isn't it? It just 
This call to live in light of the promise that's given to you. Give, live in light of the presence of God. And it goes all the way back to the invitation to Abram, who becomes Abraham, to leave his place and trust God in Genesis 12. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the place we should underline because that includes you. Then later after uh, the, the... Things have just changed. They've been brought into slavery for some reason, and then they're redeemed for that. Then they're brought out, and Moses teaches and shares with them in Deuteronomy 31. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then later still, going into the promised land to Joshua, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. These are, these are like right on the mirror type scriptures, right? These are the things that are going to get us going. This is what we need for our resolutions. Then even in Psalm 32, many of you know this by heart, or Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So there's just a slew of promises of his word and his presence that is meant to bring the people all the way home. And then these specific promises and the overarching promise of all of scripture of care and protection just gets juiced up in Christ when he comes. And Paul, writing from a prison, says in Philippians 4, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's all we need. Like, that's good. So the abiding truth of Isaiah 7, really of all of Isaiah and most of Scripture, is that faith in the Lord and in his promise is a practical approach to life, however great the crisis. Like, we, many of us put faith in Christ. We say, yeah, we're Christian. I'm a member of Grace Church, La Mesa, and we trust in the Lord. No matter what happens, no matter what crisis comes, and crisis comes, doesn't it? Some of you are in the midst of crisis even now. The truth is our capital of our life will fill under siege. Like Ray Ortland says that crisis is when God takes the training wheels off our bikes and teaches us to ride like the big kids. God is saying in your crisis, when it counts for you, trust me. I will keep my every promise, but if you treat me as unreal, you will not connect with reality at all. So do not fear Ahaz. Don't go on blowing in the wind like a tree. Here is the promise. You are safe. Judah will go on. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So that's our application this morning, isn't it? Go. Be firm in faith. If you're not, you will be, as James says, unstable in all your ways. So that's it. We've got time for lunch. Go and be warmed. Be firm. No? You want more? Right? Because what happens when we don't 
Stay firm. What about when I, just like Ahaz, run to the water cooler instead of to the Word of God? What if I look to the latest trend in culture to get me through or even to grow my church? What if I treat politics like my religion and voting my sacrament? What if I doubt God in the waiting? We know that God is more real than the earthly things immediately before us. Like this is what we declare, this is what we believe, this is what our doctrinal statements say. We know he is more desirable than any worldly attraction. We sing it in our songs. We know he is faithful, ever faithful. I just got that wrong. But we know we should live not out of what is, but what, out of what is actually promised to us. And we know our hearts must be grounded in the finality of God if we actually hope to go the distance in relationship with him. And to refuse what we ourselves know to be true just tears us apart inside. And when we deny the truth we believe and refuse the consent we desire and withhold the trust that we are actually created to enjoy, how can anything in our lives go right? Because the human being in that moment unravels if we don't have this right perspective, if we consistently turn from the only place of promise and security. And if we're not firm in faith, we're not firm at all. Everything in life, not just religion, flows out of our whole soul movement toward God in faith. That's what Isaiah presents. And friends, I, that is heavy. It's hard to carry. It's hard to wake up in light of that and live in the midst of it. And sometimes we can read, if you're not firm in faith, you're not firm at all. And I surmise that then I am not firm at all. There's hope. Because there's a new firmness in town. It's right here in front of us. Sheer Jashup. If you're looking for a new tat to get on your arm... This is a name I'd recommend. Actually, I don't recommend you tattoo names, but that's a whole other story from Leviticus 19, but whatever, right? This is cool. Put this on your mirror. So as I was studying this and writing my sermon on the victorious Christian life, I realized that God made this promise and invited Ahaz to faith. And God is not dumb. He knows Ahaz, the one he's giving a promise to, would not listen to him. In fact, God will go further with Ahaz and Judah in just the next verses. He's going to give them a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Like we just packed up our Christmas decorations and we've closed out Advent. This is Epiphany Sunday, right? The Magi have come to seek Christ. That's the promise that's about to come to this guy who has zero faith. So God knows his audience when he says, if you're not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. But he still makes the promise. Did you catch that? Because when Isaiah goes to the king, he is told to take his son with him. And his son has a name that actually paints a picture. This is where just a little bit of Hebrew helps us because Shear Jashub means a remnant shall return. And that's big. 
Because here we have promise on top of promise. He says, it shall not stand. This invasion's not going to stand. Those that oppose you will not overrun you. Actually, Syria and Israel, or Ephraim here as he speaks, will be conquered and shattered from being a people. He even gives a timeline. This is a good prophecy. Like, you can check this, right? And it happens because within a generation, those that trusted in themselves against God's people will actually be non-existent. It takes less than 10 years for Syria as a nation to be obliterated. And then Israel is going to lose all the uniqueness of their ethnicity. It's going to be completely erased as Syria injects vast numbers of different people into Samaria. Forever changing their DNA and their family tree. And even if Judah falls, even when they're carried off into exile, which they will be the fruit of their sin and rebellion against God, he still says that a remnant shall return. So God is promising to preserve a remnant of people who really know what it means to be saved by grace. And his grace will have the last word on their behalf. The triumph of his grace will come over their failure and their inability to be firm in faith. And friends, this this is a grace that then is realized for us in the one who's going to come and be named Emmanuel. This is a grace that's realized in Jesus. Because he is the one true remnant that fulfills every promise. And from the promise of blessing to Abraham to all other promises that follow, here is Emmanuel fulfilling them, giving faith. One professor of Old Testament says, Jesus has become a remnant of one. He was the embodiment of faithful Israel, the truly righteous and suffering servant. He would undergo divine judgment for sin on the cross. He would endure an exile three days forsaken by God in the grave. And he would experience a restoration. His resurrection to life is the foundation of a new Israel, inheriting the promises of God afresh. As the remnant restored to life, he becomes the focus of the hopes of the continued existence of the people of God in a new kingdom, a new Israel of Jew and Gentile alike. And that is why we can proclaim that we desire for the kingdom of God to invade places where it seems like Satan has control. Because of Jesus. So Jesus is the culmination of these promises of the Old Testament. He is finally the last Adam. He's the true Israel, the suffering servant, the son of David, the faithful remnant, the ultimate prophet, the reigning king, the final priest. And because he is, the weight of being firm in faith is lifted. Faith, just like grace, is a gift. And we then live in response to it, trusting, secure, immovable in Christ. That is, yeah, that's a great place. Amen. I don't care if you get excited. I am. Right? This might just be for me. I doubt it. So Jesus then is our source. He's our faith. He is our steadfastness. Right? The accuser comes to you tomorrow morning. Oh, if you're not firm in faith. This is what the devil sounds like if you don't know. If you're not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. You say, shut up, dude. Jesus is my faith. He is my firmness. He has stood already on my behalf. And in the promise of Emmanuel, in his life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God gives himself as the greatest ally of all times. With him, we can face anything. 
And in him, you do not need to faint before the cigarette butts of doubt and separation for God because the remnant that is Jesus has actually come. He has claimed you as his own. And to all the arrows of the enemy, to every situation that feels hopeless, he says, it shall not stand. I wish somebody would preach. It's okay, my, my people don't say amen either. No, that's not true. They're getting better. So we read from Paul in 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. So we read, if you're not firm in faith, you're not, you will not be firm at all. And we say, Jesus, give me this gift of faith. Make me as firm as you, as you've promised you would in your name, in Jesus' name. So our faith, our steadfastness is then arresting in what Jesus has already done and then living from that truth. So where Ahaz has self-assured pride, we come instead in weakness, need, and honesty. So I changed what I said earlier about don't put that on my tombstone that I was shaking like a leaf. Please. Because Jonathan Schrader, here lies Jonathan Schrader. He blew in the wind like a forest or whatever, but he ran to Jesus. So we're weak, we're needy, and we can be honest about it. Because we're given all we need in Christ. We're given salvation, provision, transformation, and a dwelling place with God for eternity. Like, you're incapable of even wrapping your mind around that. True faith is not the capacity for victorious choices when faced with two equally compelling alternatives. True faith is the capacity to act fully, joyfully, enthusiastically before our, because our eyes have been opened to the glory of Christ. So we can hear the name share Jashub and say, this is Jesus, hallelujah, there is a way for us even if we don't have a specific promise for each crisis that comes. Friends, we have Christ, and he is more than enough. So we live from this promise delivered. We live from the salvation that we have in Christ, and he is our immovable steadfastness. He is our firm faith. So 2019, encourage you lean into this faith believe the word. Maybe today it's for the first time that Jesus actually really did live in your place and died as a substitute for you so that he would defeat death and give you new life in his resurrection. And then friends, hold tightly to this promise for you. And all of his promises, read them, like savor them, endeavor to consume scripture, not just to gain, and not at all to gain God's favor, but to realize the favor that he has actually graced you with in Christ. So read scripture as a family. Find a couple friends to follow a plan together. And I know uh, the church, the elders have provided a number of reading plans for scripture that are great for you. You should endeavor to memorize the word. 
And it's only the 6th of January. It's not too late to start even for this year. And you can then surround yourself with a community of believers that will remind you. And they're sitting next to you. And I promise they'll do it. They're going to encourage you that you might be careful, quiet, and not fear. So lean into that faith. And then run to Shear Jeshub. Run to the remnant that has returned. Run to Jesus. He is exactly what you will find when you open your Bible and the Holy Spirit illuminates Scripture to you. So bring your need, bring your anxiety, bring your fear, bring your strategy, even bring your success and surrender them all to Jesus. As the apostle says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. That's my desire. That's my longing for 2019. Firm faith is found in the word of God and his peace will reign. So the word, the promise of God realized in Christ changes our perspective. Come heck or high water, we know the place of our trust. We know our steadfast Savior and we know firm faith by looking to his cross. So my friends, this is how we do resolutions. Trusting in Jesus, cherishing his word, savoring those new mercies every day. So let's live by faith for the glory of Christ. Deal? All right. Well, good and holy God, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your word that has been spoken to many before and comes again as a promise to us that the remnant shall return, and that remnant of one is Jesus who has worked for us justification, making us right before you. and continues to work a sanctification, giving us a firmness of faith, making us more like him. Lord, work that in us in 2019 for your glory and for our good. Amen.